The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. How do you view your own success? Are you leading with compassion or are you considered ruthless? There is plenty of room for both types of leaders, but the best way to lead successfully is to balance boldness and integrity, using kindness and compassion to earn respect. Combine this with a go-getter, visionary, and aggressive drive to stay competitive. Welcome to the Compassionate Samurai Business Hour with Kathy Fairbanks. We'll use the ideas heard today and in this series to help you use every advantage to achieve the best end result. Now, here's your host, Kathy Fairbanks. Welcome to the Compassionate Samurai Business Hour. I am your host, Kathy Fairbanks. Delighted to be with you here today. Now, some of you may be asking, what is a compassionate samurai? And I think the easiest way to describe what a compassionate samurai is, is out there in the business world, one needs to be a warrior. But if you marry up that warrior-like mindset with a compassionate spirit, a compassionate heart, and let those two complete a fine dance together, you can be a bold ethical leader out there without trampling over people or without becoming a doormat. So that's our definition of a compassionate samurai. And today we have a guest with us who really exemplifies that behavior. And they also bring a win-win philosophy to the small and medium-sized business world. Our guest today is Aton, Aton Milstein. Now, Aton joined a company called CSG back in 2008 after 13 years being with GE Capital, where he served as a senior vice president of media and communications and their entertainment unit. Now, during his tenure at GE, he had senior positions specifically in the structured finance area and the capital markets area. He knew how to get things done in municipal leasing as as well as maritime finance. Now, during his 30 years of experience in this financial services industry, he was also involved in mergers and acquisitions. And in one respect, that's kind of where I was able to to meet Aton. Now, he graduated from Tel Aviv University with degrees in economics and political science and also received his MBA from Arizona State University. Now, we met each other about seven years ago. I'm realizing that, ooh, we just kind of elapsed or passed our seven-year anniversary. So I'd like to welcome Aton to the show. Welcome. Thank you, Kathy. Thanks for the opportunity. Wonderful. Now, I haven't mentioned to our listeners yet what we're going to be talking about, and I save that because I think you'll do actually the better job explaining what it is that you do. But from my novice experience, if I reflect back, we were both at attending an event about seven years ago, and you just mentioned to me what you do, and I love the concept. And what I realized very quickly is here's a man who's out there offering 
a win-win business opportunity for small and medium-sized privately owned businesses. So what you mentioned to me was you work with investment banking in the ESOP world. And I had heard the term ESOP, but I really didn't understand what that means. So can you share with the listener what does ESOP even stand for and what we're going to have an ESOP 101 show today. So if you would just kind of take the lead here, explain what it is and how it can be an attractive alternative for small businesses. Absolutely. And ESOP was enacted, uh, became law in 1974. So it's been on the books for a while. And the philosophical reasoning for the creation of an ESOP was that it's hard, if not impossible, for people to create wealth on labor alone. You need to own some of the capital of an organization in order to uh, to share in the upside and create something for your future. So what Congress has done, what Congress always can do, is created a very strong incentive for business owners to part with some of that ownership interest for the benefit of the employees. And the two main tax benefits associated with an ESOP, from Congress standpoint, ESOP is just an additional retirement plan for employees. From the, from the shareholder, from the owner of a business, it's another way to be able to get some liquidity out of a business in a very tax-efficient manner, yet share it with the employees, and the employees don't have to come up with cash or to, to buy shares. It's, um, it's a little bit of a confusing description how the, how the process works, but at the end of the day, if you own a business and you're willing to sell a portion of it to your employees, Congress offers you two benefits. One, you don't have to pay capital gain tax on the proceeds from a transaction. And as we know, if you are lucky enough to live in the state of California, capital gain tax is 37%. So you're saving that much money in taxes. And secondly, which I really like as as a lender, is the fact that now the company can deduct the entire transaction uh, from from taxation, and that's a huge benefit as well. And if you consider the forty percent uh, corporate tax, so if you sold thirty no, percent of your business, which is the minimum for ten million dollars. You don't have to pay $3.7 million of tax, and the company can shelter the entire $10 million over time. So the company will save $4 million on that as well. So it's it's a tremendous tax um, liquidity strategy for for owners, uh, and yet it helps the, the employees, it helps the owners, and the banks like it, funny enough, uh, very much as well. And we'll go into the details a little later. Beautiful. So what I'm hearing you say is how we get to a win-win here is around the government has an appetite for this. They they like it. They put it out in play. The banks like it. It's certainly a win for the owners as it's structured and then a win for the employees. So are there um, particular industries, um, small business owners, medium business owners, what sort of industries or fields make good candidates for 
an ESOP? What would those good candidate parameters look like? Um, good question. Um, in, in essence, you can divide it into two main groups. On the one hand, you have professional service companies, engineers, uh, staffing, architects, uh, and, and the like, companies that don't have much in the way of assets. They have uh, people come in the morning and leave at night. Uh, they have cash flow, but they don't own much in the way of assets. So it's a difficult business to sell. If you have a staffing company and it's mostly based on your relationship with a, a certain bank, if I buy your shares uh, and you walk away, um, I don't have anything to show for it. So I will pay you very little in cash. You're going to keep working to earn what is yours anyhow, but in the meantime, you've lost control. So so professional service companies are one candidate. On the flip side, companies that are sitting on a lot of uh, depreciated or fully depreciated assets, if, uh, if you try and sell that business, and most transactions will be done on an asset sale rather than a stock sale, you'll have to pay ordinary income tax on everything above your basis in the company. So if your equipment is, is fully depreciated um, and your, zero, your basis is 0%, you'll be paying you know, ordinary income tax on the proceeds from the transaction. And that's really what's, what is very frustrating to business owners as we come across them. They're getting older and they you know there's uh, large wave of aging baby boomers and uh, not necessarily all old but people would like to diversify some of the ownership interest in the business and here is a solution that people don't think about totally unaware of and and uh, it's if nothing else i would think that every business owner should consider esop as one option that is available to him well, you sound like a, a, a the concept almost is a, a best-kept secret in terms of American business. Why do you think business owners may not know that this is even an option for them? Good question as well. I, I think uh, the, the three answers probably to that. Um, number one, for a while there's plenty of money out there. And if uh, somebody is willing to pay you 14 times EBITDA, you pay the tax and you're right into the sunset. The other was that the traditional investment bankers don't encourage ESOPs for, for the simple fact that there's no, the fees are much lower than the traditional M&A deal. There is no Lehman formula, for example, when you do an, M&A, uh, an ESOP transaction. And in addition to that, you may be selling just the portion of the business. So so why bother? I'd much rather sell than 100% of the business and, and make a large fee on that. And the last one, which I found to be the most puzzling, is that the trusted advisors, the bankers, the CPAs, the lawyers, always found ESOP to be confusing. So why bring up a subject I can't explain too well? But the reality is that um, nationwide, um, most of our transactions are referred to us by CPAs and bankers and lawyers, people that understand it, figure it out. And, and really, in reality, this is the last legitimate government-sponsored tax shelter available anymore for a business owner. 
I see. Well, that that makes a lot of sense, especially if um, I see from the investment banking standpoint of view, uh, you may push a product that's going to put more commissionable monies and funds in your, your pocketbook. And that's really not where you're looking. You're looking to produce this. Um, actually, it's a legacy is what I'm hearing you say, uh, because it gives the owners an opportunity not to sell their business out there in the open market, but yet their business gets to continue and thrive after the ESOP is complete. Very true. It's, it's, it's a psychological aspect here, and, and you're right. On the one hand, legacy is important to most people, uh, and then if you were to sell your business to a strategic buyer, it's very likely that uh, many of the employees, especially headquarters employees, are going to lose their jobs. Uh, and then, you know, People, even though they say, I want to retire, they're really not ready to quit cold turkey. They they wouldn't mind sticking around for the next three, four, five years to bring up the next generation, have something to keep them un, uh, engaged and, and productive. So, it's uh, again, it's not a panacea. It's not necessarily the right solution for biotech or high-tech company with one product that might go through the stratosphere or crash and burn and, and disappear. It's geared towards profitable, steady growth, privately held, held companies where the owners, in most cases, the, the owner has 75% of net worth tied to the business. And it's not always easy to get it out without this huge tax penalty. And and here is an option that uh, most people are just not aware of it. Well, I understand that. And I can think of so many industries that this could impact. Um, share with us some of the uh, fields and industries right before we go to break here. What kind of fields? I'm, I'm thinking family-owned businesses, multiple restaurant, uh, not quite a big national chain, but but four or five restaurants. And they'd really like to slow down their life a little bit. Are they a good candidate? Absolutely. Uh, we've done restaurants, we've done engineering, we've done um, uh, technology-oriented companies. Um, it, it's, it can apply to just about every business that, that um, is, is profitable. Again, if a company is not profitable, it doesn't make sense. But anybody who's profitable and, and with a steady growth should be a candidate. Um, we had a case where the father started the business. He had four kids. One was a CEO. One was a receptionist. And two were not involved in the business. And he wanted to give the two some money. But short of selling the business or bringing in minority investor, which is never a fun exercise, um, he didn't know what to do. By doing selling to an ESOP, he got liquidity to, to give money to the two. The, the CEO son was very happy. The receptionist person was very happy. And yet the company stayed within, within the family. And, and by doing that, you know, one, one benefit that is hard to measure is what you do to employee loyalty and, and productivity. And, and we can talk about measurements and what um, institutions like universities have done studying ESOP companies, but the advantages and the benefits are very, very impressive. 
Fantastic. Well, let's go to break right now. We've been sharing with Aton Milstein, and Aton has been enlightening us about the win-win value of employee stock purchase plan. We're going to go to break, and we come back. I want to go through the details from cradle to grave of what a company would go through, what the process is when they go uh, and complete an ESOP launch and ESOP conversion. You've been listening to the Compassionate Samurai Business Hour with your host, Kathy Fairbanks. Stay tuned for more. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Take us on the go. It's even easier now. The Voice America Talk Radio Network has launched our mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market to download the app powered by Aircast. It's free and no registration is necessary. In minutes, you could be enjoying your favorite Voice America Talk Radio host, no matter where you are, in the car, out and about, while traveling, or anytime you can't be close to your computer. Catch up on the archives you've missed or discover new shows on the spot. Search Voice America at your favorite app store. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to the Compassionate Samurai Business Hour. To reach Kathy Fairbanks or her guest today, please call into our program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, the email address is kathy at com. Now, back to the Compassionate Samurai Business Hour. Welcome to the Compassionate Samurai Business Hour, and this is your host, Kathy Fairbanks. Before we went to break, we've been chatting with Aton Milstein, and Aton is an financial expert in the field of ESOPs, Employees Stock purchase plans. Now, this is where the employees actually own a piece of the pie. And we've been talking to Aton around what's the process of small business, medium business ownership, those that are profitable, who want to not sell their business out there in the open market, but they want to continue with that business to thrive, but they may not want to show up and be that owner who's running the business on a daily basis. Aton, give us an idea if someone has an interest in just getting a little diligence, a little research completed around what an ESOP could do for their company. What does that process look like from cradle to grave? Because I'm sure there's a lot of T's to cross and I's to dot from start to finish. Can you share with us what that looks like? 
Definitely. Um, well, the first thing, of course, if you own a business, is you want to know the, what, what, how much is it worth. So the good news about ESOP is that you you'll sell it, but you you'll sell it for fair market value, and that will be a negotiated value between between yourself as a seller and the buyer, which would be the ESOP trustee. And even though it doesn't say anywhere that the trustee has to be an institutional uh, independent trust company, we strongly recommend that you do it that way because the ESOP is subject to review by the Department of Labor. And when they are going to come and visit you at some point in the future, you need to be able to demonstrate that it was indeed a negotiated process, that you had the best talent you could get from a trustee. The trustee will have its own independent valuation firm. You need to have an ESOP attorney that specializes in that, and you'll need someone like CSG Partners as an investment banker that structures the transaction, optimize it, bring in all the parties, and and um, make sure that we raise the needed capital to allow the owners to walk away with some some cash. So if you still keeping tab, I can tell you a little bit about the process, how it goes, and it's really not that complicated. What what will happen? The employees would like to buy your shares, but they don't have the money, they don't have uh, the assets they can borrow against. So if they go to a bank, the bank is not going to lend them anything. But the bank will be happy to lend money to the company. So what we're doing, you're creating two separate loans. There will be an external loan between the bank and the company, and that would be for a term of three, five, seven years, whatever we negotiate with the bank. And then you create a second loan, internal loan, between the company and ESOP, and that can go as long as 20, 30 years, depends on the structure. So money goes from the bank to the company, from the company to the ESOP, from the ESOP to the selling shareholder. In return, of course, uh, the owner will take his shares and would give it to the ESOP, except the loan between the company and the ESOP is still outstanding, so you don't want to give your shares to the ESOP while the loan is out there. So the shares are going to be held in suspense, and they're going to be allocated to the ESOP gradually as the loan between the company and the ESOP is paid off. Um, So far, so good? Yeah, I'm I'm tracking you. Yeah. All right. So now comes the big question. How is the ESOP able to pay back the loan to the company? It still doesn't have any cash. It still doesn't have any assets. And here lies the, the crux of the ESOP. The company is allowed to make an annual contribution to the ESOP pre-tax equal to 25% of payroll. So if your payroll is $4 million, you can take $1 million pre-tax, send it to the ESOP, and within a couple of hours, the money will come right back to the company. But that $1 million now is exempt from taxation. So the money goes from the company to to the ESOP and back to the company. And say it was a 10 years loan, so 
loan has been paid off with that payment. So 10% of the shares that was sitting in suspense now are going to be allocated to the ESOP. So after 10 years, as the loan between the company and ESOP has been paid off, the entire shares that the owner sold to the ESOP will be allocated to, to the ESOP at that point. All right. So I am tracking you. Is it normal? Is there a normal period for that length of the loan? Uh, is it always 10 years or is there flexibility there? It, it, it varies. It varies. It depends on the, on the structure of the ESOP, whether it's minority sale or is it the majority sale? Um, is it the C Corp or an S Corp uh, and so on? But, um, but one, one of the things that we do as part of the initial analysis is to figure out the best structure and the, the best um, external debt, internal debt allocation and so on and try and optimize a transaction that will work best uh, for the selling shareholder. And at the end of the day, our role is to maximize the value for the selling shareholder. And that's why it's, it's important to do it right. It takes, it takes a while to put an ESOP to, together correctly. It normally will take between three and eight months to, to do a good job. And the, a lot of uh, moving parts, you, you have to make sure that the analysis is complete and detailed and everybody agrees to, with the conclusions. And, and then you bring in all the parties to, to make sure that it's, it's finalized as, as advertised. But um, at the end, the one CEO had the best quote. He said it was a win-win-win. But it was a win for him and his, his, sharing, uh, his, his other shareholders. It was great for the employees. It was good for the banks. And, and everybody likes it. So it sounds like it may be a little complicated. It may take a little hand-holding and, uh, and structuring capabilities. But it's, uh, it, it's workable. It's doable. And the result, results are just um, too good to be true, as most people will tell you. But the good news is that it's all legal. It's encouraged by the government. And it works great. Well, and what I'm realizing, too, is as a business owner, I don't have that expertise that you offer. You know how, you know where those moving parts are. You know what stages um, need to be followed and in what order over that three to eight month period of time. And that, I'm guessing, is where you create the value for your client. Exactly. And and not only that, um, now the government assists as well because all these newly found deductions are going to either reduce or eliminate current tax liability. And if you have a large enough payroll, the contribution is likely to create a... Um, a um, loss, paper loss, when we close the transaction, meaning that if you pay taxes in the last few years and you're creating paper loss now, you have a right to go back to the government and say, remember what I, I paid you in tax in the last year or two? Look, I got a loss and you're going to get a tax cash refund within three to six months from closing. So most of the transaction costs, if not all of them, 
are covered by the initial tax benefits of the transaction. All right, I see that. Now, from that perspective, is there a particular length of time? I'm thinking from the day one a company converts and becomes a... um, an ESOP. Let's say I'm a grocery store clerk, and all of a sudden I have a slice of ownership in a company that I've never had before. What would prevent me, or is there anything to prevent me from cashing out day one and walking across the street and becoming a grocery store clerk at the the competition? Very good question, and it happened before, and it happened before because the plan wasn't thought through and wasn't documented correctly. What the law says, and, and you're touching on a very good point, which is the, the real, uh, at least theoretical risk associated with an ESOP, and that is exactly as you described, Kathy. Everybody, all the shares have been allocated, everybody's fully vested, and people quit and want to get paid. So the the response to that is, number one, if the only time you have to pay somebody immediately is if somebody dies, becomes disabled, or retired. In that case, you have a year to figure it out, and then you have five years to pay it off. But if somebody just quit, you don't have to start paying them until, number one, the loan between the company and ESOP has been paid off. So if it was a 10 years loan, you don't have to start paying them until that happens. And then you have an additional five years to pay them off. And and the, again, the reason is that ESOP is a retirement plan. It's not uh, get rich quick. And and that was the intent here. Second item to keep in mind is that the employees do not have shares. The, the, all the shares are held by the ESOP trust. So there's only one shareholder. The employees will have a beneficial interest. And over time, they, they're going to see their, the value of the shares go up. And, and the best analogy I can use when I will make presentation to employees after a transaction was concluded is somebody just gave you a gift in the form of a house, but the house is a mortgage. So over time, two things will happen. As the mortgage is being paid off, and you, the employees, don't have to come up with a dime to do that. No, the company is doing it on your behalf. So the value of your equity in that building goes up. So you're going to see an increase in in the value of your ownership that way. And secondly, if the value of the building is going up in the market, you're going to share in that as well. So long term, you're going to see significant growth, and and when people translate it, it means the harder you work, the the better off we we do as as a company, the more we will have to share when we retire, and plenty of success stories out there of people in in blue blue collar jobs retiring with six figures income. Well, that certainly sounds like a win-win to me. I'm trying to get my head around 
around parameters in terms of um, the valuation number. Is there a minimum um, amount of valuation? How many millions would a company need to be worth for them to consider uh, to be considered a candidate for an ESOP? And is there an employee minimum or maximum as well? Yeah, uh, I think for the most part, you want to see a company that uh, generates a just a dividend of at least one and a half million dollars, uh, ideally more. And because valuation, even though the valuation is done primarily on a discounted cash flow analysis, it, it has to, to remain within, within reality of multiples in the marketplace. So you, you wouldn't be able to, um, to get much value if uh, if you're doing you know, half a million dollars of EBITDA, it's the cost of putting a good plan together will not justify the benefits. So by one and a half, two million dollars of adjusted EBITDA is a good start. And the number of employees, you want to see at least 15, 20 employees because, again, the deductions are based on the size of a payroll. Uh, say, having said that, though, we did a transaction here uh, with nine employees because the company did $2 million of EBITDA and it still made sense for them, highly profitable. And we had a transaction with a company with barely a million dollars of EBITDA, but it was a C-Corp and it had a lot of uh, cash and securities that had accumulated over the years. And doing an ESOP allowed the selling shareholders to take all that money out tax-free. So it's um, it's never hurts to to take a quick look and uh, and run it by us, and we'll tell you if it does make sense or if it doesn't make sense. All right, wonderful. I think it just popped in my head. Um, is there ever a time where a company is? They've already completed their ESOP launch, and for one reason or another, they do they have an opportunity, or would they ever want to go and become a publicly traded company? Um, the good news about ESOP is that once you you put it together, you still have full flexibility as to the future, and the reason is that corporate governance doesn't change when you do an ESOP. It's an existing board that will keep running the company. The ESOP trustee has no interest whatsoever to sit at the table and tell you how to run the company. Once a transaction has been uh, uh, been implemented, the role of a trustee is to protect the interest of the employees. So if you sold to an ESOP, you can turn around and sell the company to a third-party buyer. You can buy it back from the ESOP down the road. Uh, if you sold the minority interest, you can sell the rest of it um, to the ESOP or a third party. You retain full flexibility as to what to do. Something else that is uh, normally ignored with ESOP is that it's also a very efficient uh, wealth transfer tool. If you want to give your ownership interest in a business to, to your heirs, it's subject to gift tax. If we do it a day after the ESOP has been put in place, the v- value of these shares has come down because of a new debt we put on it, and that's a time to transfer the ownership to to your kids or family members that you'd like to pass it on to, and the value will be much reduced and the gift tax will uh, not be as, as significant as it would have been otherwise. 
Wow, fantastic. I am so intrigued with this. We're going to take a short break. We're going to come back and we're going to learn a little bit about the myths that uh, dog and Aesop, completely untrue. And then I want to get into a couple of case studies to give everybody uh, something to sink their teeth into uh, regarding real live transactions. You're listening to the Compassionate Samurai Business Hour. Your host, Kathy Fairbanks. Stay tuned for more. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CIO Talk Radio, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experiences with listeners as they discuss with Sunjog All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive. This means better care for customers and improves the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjog All every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel, the bottom line in business talk. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Klass. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. are listening to the Compassionate Samurai Business Hour. To reach Kathy Fairbanks or her guest today, please call into our program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, the email address is kathy at com. Now, back to the Compassionate Samurai Business Hour. Welcome back to the Compassionate Samurai Business Hour. Your host, Kathy Fairbanks. We have been learning all kinds of information from financial expert Aton Milstein. And Aton's been sharing with us the benefits of companies converting their profitable business profitable business into an employee stock ownership plan. And so what I'd like to dive into now would be what are some of the myths that come into play with ESOPs? I know sometimes when I'll talk about it with people, they'll say, oh, does that mean the employees have to come up with the cash? So Aton, would you share with us and dispel some of those myths that are out there regarding your field? Sure. And and I think we've encountered just about everything, and every transaction we've closed probably started with with one of or, or more of these misconceptions. And and you would hear things like um, the employees are going to find out, look at the financial statement, tell me how to run the company. 
uh, the employees don't have any money, or if I sell it to the employees, nothing will be left for the for my family, or I'm not ready yet. I want to keep running the company for another X years, or uh, I would lose full control over the business, or um, it's too complicated, and I've seen somebody who tried it and it didn't work well. Um, it will put too much debt on the company. Uh, it wouldn't, I wouldn't get fair market value for the business. Um, it, it, it will prevent me from uh, selling the company down the road. None of that is true. And and when people start listening and understanding, I think they will be quick to to realize that uh, it has so much to offer and really none of this uh, uh, myth of anything to do with reality. Well, then, and that's certainly, I mean, you've dispelled a lot of those myths because I think it's a place where people go to uh, quite frequently. And one of the things that I know that you offer is that initial consultation just to help people get their head around that. What would be some of the questions you might ask of a prospective client during that consultation? Yeah, we we call it um, feasibility study or phase one, and what it means is we'll take um, 10 to 15 items of information, anyway, from historical financials to the the payroll size and and the projections and and so on, and come back with a fairly thick book that will have two key components in it. Number one, which is what every owner wants to know, is estimate of value, and will be very close to the final valuation that uh, can be negotiated. We've we've done it enough times. We know all the, the valuation methodologies, and and will be very close to the final value. The other part is what every selling shareholder can expect after five years, after tax, cash in pocket, given uh, various scenarios, anywhere from companies' performance uh, going down, remaining flat, or going up, and selling anywhere from 30% to 100%. Uh, whether it's C-Corp or an S-Corp. So it, it's quite a matrix. Uh, we'll, of course, we'll, we'll synthesize it and summarize it and come up with an optimal solution or two. But at the end, when you look at the, at the summary, you can, you can take a look and say, okay, in five years, if I'm selling 49% of these up today and my company is going to grow at the rate of 4% a year on average, I can expect to have so many dollars in my pocket free and clear. And then it's much easier to make a decision, a rational decision. Uh, do I sell now? Do I wait? Do I look for a third-party sale, etc.? But um, that that analysis is um, it will take um, three, four weeks. It's a pretty thorough job, but it's a very valuable um, first step to determine whether it makes sense or, or, or does not. Wonderful. Now, what type of, uh, I know at Clemmer and Associates with leadership development that we offer, we're always talking about putting a great team together. So for your prospective client, who would they need to have on your team that you interact with in order to start the 
process of phase one? I'm guessing you're going to want to talk to their accountant. Who else do they need to have at the ready uh, in order to start that diligent process? Good question. And I think uh, for the most part, you definitely want uh, the CFO to be involved. The CPAs will uh, bring in some valuable uh, insight. Um, if they have uh, a good uh, law firm they're working with, then they can you know, uh, take a look and, and opine and, and come up with suggestions. But for the most part, you do want to keep it a little bit quiet because if it doesn't happen for whatever reason, um, you know, employees are not going to be too happy. So it's good to keep it quiet for the initial stages, uh, do the analysis, and then spread the good news and the reaction, uh, many times you see people sitting there with tears in their eyes, you know, recognizing what the, what the owners have just done for them. Um, it's um, and and as, as long as we're talking about that, and the other question is, how do the ESOP ownership? interest is being divvied up among employees. Perfect. And Let's talk about that because I, I didn't know if it was all equal or uh, rank and grade. How, how is that divvied up? That is one, one area where you cannot discriminate. And you cannot, ex- you, you have to include everybody who is over the age of 21 and works a thousand hours a year. Now, the only group of people that you can exclude is anybody who's subject to collective bargaining. So if it's a, a metal shop and it has 30 people in a home office and 100 people working in a shop and, and the shop is unionized and the office is not, you'll do an ESOP for the home office, but you'll exclude the employees that are subject to um, to collective bargaining. But as far as allocation of ownership within the, within the ESOP, the law is very clear. It's individual W-2 divided by the total W-2, and it's maxed at 265000 a year. So somebody who's making 365 or 265000 will end up with the same ownership interest within the ESOP. But, and somebody who's making 26500 will be will be sharing in 10% uh, compared to the one who's making the 265000 Um but you, you you cannot discriminate. What you can do is you can lower the the threshold from two sixty five to say a hundred thousand dollars, and then it's much more egalitarian uh, in nature. But that's that's a flexibility that the the owner can exercise. Something else to keep in mind too is the shares are going to be vested over time, or the ownership is going to be vested over time. Most companies will do similar to a four one k, twenty percent a year uh, vested over six years or or three years cliff, uh, whichever they they prefer. But you can discriminate a little bit here too if somebody's been with you for say long term, and you would like to give them credit uh, for this duration. You can make them vested immediately, or you can get them uh, um, a few years extra so they don't have to wait the full full amount of time. But but there's there's a little flexibility there, but not as far as allocation of shares to the individual. 
All right. That's really great information to know. And I'm, I'm wondering if you would share, I would love to hear, um, an overview, a case study or two, just some highlights around, uh, what the industry was and what their start to finish process looked like. Uh, and then I want to move on to the impact and the loyalty factor that, uh, can be measured in different ways, but always measured. So, um, share with us something top of mind that you have in terms of a transaction that you've you've had over the last few years that was quite successful, if you would, Aton? Uh, yeah, there are so many uh, <laughs> points to uh, one. Um, I can tell you somewhat of a sad story that you, you may be familiar with. It was a fairly small company on the East Coast. The, um, the founder and, and a key engine behind the company, unfortunately, was diagnosed with Alzheimer and started to deteriorate quickly. His wife uh, was not involved in the business, but she had full authority. Uh, the um, the management team was very good, was getting a little bit edgy and said, no, we're not collecting much money. We're doing all the work. Uh, might as well go and work somewhere else. Um, and at the end of the day, uh, we ended up with um, ease of transaction for the entire transaction. For the, um, the management got ownership interest now in the company in, in two ways. One, by participating in the ESOP and giving their um, their higher compensation package. Of course, they got a larger share than, than the average person. In addition to that, we are, you can also structure stock appreciation rights for the benefit of employees, and that, um, that bode very well. Uh, for management as well. At the same time, the the wife who was collecting combined, I think it was about three hundred thousand a year. But after tax, you know, she would be left with not that much money, and most of it had to go and take care of the husband who was in an, in a home by that time. So, by doing an ESOP, the fact that she didn't have to pay any tax on the on the proceeds. She had much more money in the pocket. She could take care of uh, of the sick husband, but at the same time, put some money aside for her retirement, and uh, it worked out exceedingly well for everybody involved. Um, and that's uh, kind of more human side of the transaction. Uh, pure economics, uh, very exciting when you do an ESOP as well. But the owners end up getting two, three times more on average than uh, they end up with if they do a traditional uh, M&A transaction. Well, that's the math that I really like. I'm a big fan of that. And, and I'm um, familiar with the company that you're talking about. And it certainly has produced a win-win in so many different areas for their organization. And the one area that, as you say, it's hard for you to measure, but it's actually a pretty easy measurement for Clemmer and Associates leadership to measure. And that is of loyalty. And some of the things that that occur post-ESOP is having some skin in the game. It actually changes the way an employee shows up and 
goes to work. It opens up their creativity. And this particular company, not only did they complete their ESOP, but they also use the leadership training program of Clemmer and Associates to put everybody on the same page, everybody on that same life raft together. It opened up creativity. It opened up their communication, um, blew the lid off of the trust level in terms of how people showed up at work. And so I can't speak enough about how these two programs, the financial aspect of an ESOP, go hand in glove with the people skills of leadership development. So, Aton, I'm so grateful for your time today. One last question I had for you um, is, how do people get in touch with you? Are you open to uh, a phone call, an email, just to be in a, an initial conversation to see whether or not this is a solution for their particular company? Are you open to that? Absolutely. I, I love to talk about that subject. It's uh, I never had as much fun in my career as I do now because uh, when you're a banker, as you know, somebody's always unhappy. When you do an ESOP, the owners are happy, the employees are happy, and the banks are happy. And that's a very important point because everything being equal from a bank standpoint, now I have the same borrower who doesn't have to take 40% of cash flow and send it to Washington in the form of tax. That money stays here to amortize my debt. So what is a not to like? So um, email is probably the most efficient way to reach me, and I'll be happy to return it uh, either email or by phone call anytime. Okay, perfect. Would you provide for the listeners both your email and the best number uh, to reach you? And one of the things that would be fantastic, I would love for a listener to mention that they heard the show on Voice America. And that way you have an idea of what was the genesis of this phone call or email. So go ahead and share your email and phone with the uh, listeners, if you would. Certainly. Um, the telephone is area code 415-464-0699, and the email is emilstein, so E-M-I-L-S-T-E-I-N, at CSG Partners, used to stand for Corporate Solutions Group, but now it's csgpartners.com. Fantastic. And I'd encourage anyone who has um, just a modicum amount of interest and intrigue around this concept, give Aton a call. He is a true compassionate samurai, full of integrity, accountability, honesty, and trust. And I couldn't recommend a conversation with this gentleman any higher than I do. You've been listening to the Compassionate Samurai Business Hour with Kathy Fairbanks. I am your grateful host and look forward to being with you next week. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you for tuning into our show. You can hear the Compassionate Samurai Business Hour live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week's show, be sure to take action and create your own success.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.